Hello, I'm Ellen Bentz. Welcome to Impact, a podcast about how we can each bring about real change in the world and getting practical and making that happen. And hello, I'm Clive Johnson. A special welcome if you're listening for the first time and a big thank you to our new subscribers. Each week, we look at one aspect of how we can connect our hearts to offer healing for others with our collective intention, prayers, and meditation, and talk about the critical happenings in the world that need our attention right now, some of which may not be making the headlines where you are. In the news this week, there is hope of improved relations and cooperation over the fate of migrants moving between Mexico and the US, a huge earthquake hits Japan, and we have a special focus on the world of artificial intelligence. More on that later. But first, our featured topic for this week. I had the privilege of interviewing Chris Katzenmeyer, who is the executive director of the Legacy Labyrinth Project, where I am the director of Labyrinth Activism. She's done a lot of work on intention, and we thought it would be great to bring her in to give us the baseline introduction into intention, what it means, and there are also so many opportunities that people will be able to take advantage of that uh, Legacy Labyrinth Project is offering that you'll be interested in. So welcome, Chris. Hi, Ellen. It's great to be here. Thank Good you. Good to see you. Taking the time out to, to be here with us. Um, can you give us a little bit of an introduction Possibly into the Legacy Labyrinth Project, so our community knows what that is, because I will be talking about that a lot. And um, that, you know, that might lead right into what sparked your interest into working with intention. Sure, absolutely. That's actually my favorite question, Ellen. Thank you. <laughs> and I'll try to do it briefly, but the Legacy Labyrinth Project started... In 2014, as a um, board of directors project with Veritas, I was on the board. We were asked to come up with fundraising ideas, and that was my idea, to to build labyrinths for communities um, that were in need. Now, I served on a committee um, for Columbine for their, um, for their memorial, and I could see from that experience that um, grieving, and grief, really, when people grieve, they need to move. A lot of us need to move instead of just stay static. And so a labyrinth for Columbine um, always made sense to me. Fast forward to building our first legacy labyrinth in Argentina. Really could feel when we were building this labyrinth from everyone who was building it with us, that there was something there that we hadn't quite identified yet. And then when we built the second legacy labyrinth, we understood clearly those of us who were building that these labyrinths are connected. I've always been interested in telepathing messages as a communication. I mean, as a kid, I could, I could, I always thought I could hear my dog talking to me. Oh, I love that. (laughs) And I always thought she could hear me talking back. And I just thought that was normal. And my grandmother, who I dearly, dearly love, who didn't live anywhere close to us as a kid, I just knew when she was speaking to me. I knew when she was sending me love. So to me, telepathy messages was kind of a way of life. So again, when we were building these labyrinths, I very I had a very deep feeling and knowing that we could send messages from one labyrinth to another labyrinth. And that if we built a whole network of labyrinths, that that messaging could be felt by all. 
Now, I didn't have the science for it then. <laughs> it was totally intuitive. Um, but we have the science now, not only our own science that we have been doing um, with our own research in partnership with Baylor University, but um, there has been some incredible um, heart energy research that's coming out and the work of Lynn McTaggart, which I'll talk a little bit more later about, but she is quite the pioneer in um, in intentions. So just, so, just to clarify with Legacy Labyrinth Project, we have gone on to build eight legacy labyrinths that are connected, not just energetically, as Chris was talking about, but also with materials. Every legacy labyrinth shares materials from the others. And Mm -hmm. um, some of our our listeners, Chris, might not be totally familiar with the labyrinth, but we're going to take care of that too. So we also, I also wanted to say that Veritas is an organ, is an organization that works with labyrinths when you said you were on the board of Veritas. Yes. And each legacy labyrinth kind of has its own attention, doesn't it? Each labyrinth, it was very important to us and the people that we were working with in building legacy labyrinths that that they had their specific purpose for that area and that they were healing, that they were working on as a community. And then as a network, our purpose and intention is to use this network as a method of communication with one another. So the power of the whole network is that exponential energy that we'll get into a little bit later today, I hope. And also it's, it's a network that everyone can use. It's not just legacy labyrinth owners or people, um, but everyone. And, um, so yeah, we built eight and number nine is coming um in the spring in Newfoundland, which we're thrilled. Yeah. It's really exciting. And we we do believe that all labyrinths are connected, but mm-hmm. intentionality, as we'll get into, makes this uh network even stronger exponentially, as you said. Yes, yes. So just in short about that, if you're walking the legacy labyrinth in Chart, which we have one in Chart. Um, and you, yeah, and you're sending an intention and it's not theoretically, but energetically, it can be felt, um, received in any of the other labyrinths in the network. And I think I want to just comment on that if I could, Ellen. Please. <laughs> um, people think that intention work, you know, sometimes is magical, can be magical. Sometimes it's, you know, like, well, let's just see if this works. Um, I am happy to say that through, again, our own research and the research of others, um, intentions are not just a maybe. Intentions work and they work in different ways, which I'll get into again later. But I want to let people today and on your podcast know that it's not, um, it's not a maybe. It's not a maybe. Absolutely. Quantum entanglement, all these different theories are proving it. Yes. And we're just on the cusp of it. And I'm just so happy to not only be a labyrinth lover or lover of labyrinths, but to be able to use the labyrinth in this in this work. It it helps immensely. Yes. And our our listeners will know a lot about that as we keep going, because I, too, love working with. The labyrinth is my modality for healing and um, intention. Mm-hmm. 
So you mentioned Lynn McTaggart, and I think you, you mm-hmm. studied Lynn for a while, I did. right? I did. Yes. And tell us who Lynn McTaggart is. Yeah, Lynn McTaggart um, actually is not a scientist. She's a, a, a journalist, and she is she's an American living in um, in the UK, and she's been writing books on intention. Um, and if anyone is seriously interested in going deeper, the intention experiment, one of her books that she's written is, um, quite interesting. Very, very, very much. But what we did was, um, I worked with Lynn every week, um, for 12 months and a group of eight people, other Lynn and eight people, and we would set intentions and we would actually then hold each other's in meditation with our intention from all different places in the world. It's all very non-local. And then we would come back the following week to report. And uh, I think, I mean, there's lots to say about that, but I think in summary, uh, what I learned was you can send an intention out to affect or impact something. And most of the time you really don't know if it did right? Most of the time you don't. But what you do know is how it has impacted you. And you also know how it's impacted your group. And on that end of things, I can very clearly say um, our group became very telepathic, <laughs> very telepathic and very um, close, very close. Um, we were sharing each other's, you know, deepest needs and wants for one, but also we started communicating in a way that didn't, we didn't need words. So you became coherent. Your group yes. became coherent and uh, in sync with each other is another way of saying it or entrained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And that is, <laughs> we've learned through our research that that is absolutely primary in getting intentions to quote work is to be in uh, heart coherence. Um, before you release your intention. And as I have mentioned before and will mention in the future, we use a lot of information from the HeartMath Institute. Yes. We felt we were the labyrinth, quote, experts. And our partner, um, Dr. McGee at Baylor, is the contemplative um, science expert. And through her academia and uh, skills and research and our skills in thinking we know labyrinths, <laughs> we left the science of the coherence um, and intention to to other scientists and other groups who have already done that research. Um, and so we used that evidence-based information in what we were doing. And so we were definitely and continue to um, look at the role of the labyrinth in this work. And it's exciting. What's happening? Yeah. Would you like me to tell you what we've come up with? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. I had you here today. Again, my second favorite subject. Um, we did, well, for World Labyrinth Day, starting in 2020, when you became the World Labyrinth Day coordinator, we had other things planned through Legacy Labyrinth Project, but it was COVID. And so we couldn't travel and do the um, presentations and pilgrimages that we wanted. So luckily... Um, it, it became a, a time that we could do research. We could stay in our own houses and, you know, and do research. So from 2020 until last year, there's 
three years, we have done um, on World Labyrinth Day a, um, a research project called the Big Connection. Big Connection 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. And our 1.0 study was just published in Frontiers in Psychology, actually last, last month. And three things really, really, really stood out in that um, particular research. And this is using an intention, heart-brain um, coherence, and then walking with that and incoherence to the middle of the labyrinth, saying the intention again, feeling the emotion of what it would feel like when it's manifest, and then releasing it. So we asked over 800 people um, to to do that with us, for us, gave them the intention taught them the process, and the three things that we learned from that, from the 2020 walk, was that over 80% of the people felt connected, connection, connected, whether it was intra, inter, or trans um, personal connections. And again, this was people all over the world, so we're talking non-local connection. On World Day, which is the first Saturday in May of every year. Right. Happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And if people don't understand non-local, that just means that you feel connected to someone who's not like in the same, you know, um, area, physical area that you are. So, so like right now I could feel a non-local connection with Ellen, who's in Chicago and I'm in Denver. So that's what non-local means. So the majority of the people felt some kind of connection to themselves, to others, and the transpersonal would be, you know, connection to the divine, connection to earth, connection to nature. The second thing we found was that this process, that the one I'm talking about with intentions, uh, creates what we're calling a transcendent, transcend, I can't say it, transcendent experience. So what is a transcendent experience? It's a feeling of ultimacy, boundlessness, or positive emotion. And ultimacy is like the um, the truth of the truth, you know, the deepest real there is. Um, boundlessness is experiences between time and space or no time and space. Mm-hmm. And positive emotions obviously are things like joy and awe and lift and uplift. So I think the third one is probably the one that we did not see coming. but we're delighted. And the third one is that, uh, that the majority of people who participated felt some sort of compassion for action. Now, just to remind everyone who's listening, this was COVID time. So a lot of us were like antsy, right. To do something, to get something done. A little fearful. Yeah. I mean, we were still hesitant on that world labyrinth day to have, outdoor walks even in Mm -hmm. so there was there was some hesitancy Mm -hmm. absolutely and how can we stop this you know how can we help our humanity you know not you know go away so those three things connection transcendent experiences and compassion for action um is something that we are continuing to research and just for your for your listeners we will be doing a three-part series um, to really take the deep dive on all of this in February. And 
we hope be people in show notes. Will, will All that registration okay. information will Wonderful. be in show notes so people can go right to Legacy Labyrinth Project and register for that. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and just a little bit of, about that research, too. Um, the part that we didn't see coming, the compassion for action, probably has piqued our interest the most. And what has come out of that is um, something that we have now trademarked com- contemplative labyrinth activism. We all are labyrinth walkers. We all, you know, walk labyrinths contemplatively. I mean, that's how we, that's how we learned. That's how we've been doing it. Um, and there's many of us, and when we saw this in our research, many of us want to take action, are receiving information that we should take action or receiving information of what action to take. And we want to listen to that. We want to listen to that because it's so, it's been in our own research, it's came, come through very, very loud and strong. Um, people like Richard Rohr, who, you know, uh, runs or has been the director of the Center for Action and Contemplation, you know, gets it, you know, and through his guidance and his wisdom, you know, it, it becomes very exciting for us too that we can receive the answers as labyrinth walkers of how to take the action that we want to take to, to make change. And that's what contemplative labyrinth activism is all about. And that actually came through um, this study um, from World Labyrinth Day in 2020. So anyway, that's, that's really taken us on a, taken us on a journey. It's <laughs> for sure. Has. And we're learning, we're, we're learning, we're listening, we're letting it emerge. Um, it's not easy work. Our Labyrinth Activist Network tackles some tough subjects and we set some lofty intentions that require us to be our best selves. Um, right. And we're not shying away from it at no, all. No, but no. We are learning. We are learning. And it's, it's you know, and this is my be- my belief. And I, I know it is yours too, Ellen, because we've talked about it. But this is the time to do this kind of work. You know, if we really want to be, you know, change agents, and we really want to use the the practice that we are so either used to or in love with and see see the positive results of that it that it is time now and and i agree with you the labyrinth activist network is not shying away from this work and it is work because in this work you start to look at yourself first and sometimes you don't really like what you're seeing but you're also working with yourself in the areas of compassion and that in my view again is what is what this world needs. And it's also what the labyrinth can teach us. So um, it's, yeah. it's been wonderful. So the process of our contemplative labyrinth activism is step one to be individually coherent and um, right. aligned, focused. Mm-hmm. And then we come together in our group. And as Chris explained, even with her work with Lynn McTaggart to become coherent in the group and trained and then you know, we take our intention and apply it and send it out. And so that it's exponentially more powerful. And everyone is, you know, the people who are involved. And, and of course, we invite you, our, our community, our listeners to join our Labyrinth Activist Network. That information will also be in the show notes. Um, is there everyone's 
you know, pretty good at becoming individually coherent. This group coherence is kind of a new thing, but it's the intention, learning how to write the effective, highest good intentions. It's a challenge. And yes. yeah. So tell us, a, tell us a little bit about that process. Well, you nailed it. It's a challenge. <laughs> and I'll, and I'll just, share what I've learned about why it's a challenge. I mean, this is definitely a learning process on my part. It's a challenge because one, you know, there's a lot of kinds of intentions, you know, there's legal intentions, there's psychological intentions, there's behavioral intentions, and they all mean something different than what we're talking about today. You know, a legal intention is the focal point of criminal law. <laughs> and that's not what we're doing. Mm-mm. Um this kind of intention is works on the principle of quantum science and so does heart math or so does heart brain and coherence. Um, we want to be able to get into a place coherence, as you say. Um, and then the second biggest, I think important part of intention setting on labyrinths is in the release of the intention. And this is based on, you know, questioning all of our people who have been participating. And what we're finding is, is that if you go to the center of the labyrinth with your intention in coherence, if you can feel emotionally, physically feel the emotion of what will it feel like when your intention has manifested, if you can get into that feeling, it really is the energy of that feeling that you are releasing. And it really is the energy of that feeling that um, connects. So people get very hung up. This is the challenge. People get very hung up on the wording, you know, yes. got to be perfect and it's yeah. got to be succinct and it's got to like, everybody's got to agree on it. Well, I'd say that's 50% true. And it can take a long time in a group to get to that place. But when you spend your time wordsmithing, an intention, what's happening is you are coming out of your heart and coming back into your brain. So if people can remember when you set an intention, the best place to set an intention is through and with your heart and becoming coherent as you actually are writing the intention. Um, that way it comes from the heart energy and, um, and will probably look very different than when you just spend a whole lot of time in your head doing it. Not to say that a long intention is bad, not to say that the group intention taking a long time is bad. It's not all any of it's bad. Um, it's just that we're seeing that it's the energy of the emotion that really is carrying the intention forward. And we try um, in our Labyrinth Activist Network Circle, when we set intentions, are we are committed to transcending division. And, you know, even if we tackle something that might be a little political to rise above the politics, to rise above the divisiveness and our tension be at a a place that um, is about healing and unity and for the highest good. Yes, because that's one of the principles of intention is um, is unity, is oneness, is non-separation and when you come from that place and releasing your intention, right, then you're going to that place. Your intention, you know, 
is going to that place. And this is in a general way, but it is going to that place. So yes, you want to be able to be in non-separation with your group if you're writing with a group, for sure. Yep. And that's what's so beautiful about the Labyrinth Activist Network is we've met enough times now that when we do get together, we can start feeling that coherence. And when we do the meditation, it, it becomes even stronger. So yeah, I... Anyone listening, if you want to do practice in this work, please come to the Labyrinth Activist Network. Yes, we are a uh, coherent group, but we are always ready to welcome new people and would love to have anybody who's interested join us. It's really powerful. It's a group of very wise, kind, um, compassionate people, as you said. So, yes, join us. Join us. The more yes, we have, yes. the stronger we are, the more power. Absolutely. At an exponential level. Absolutely. So what are your hopes for the future with intention as we learn, as we talked about? I want everybody to know what an intention is, how to write it, how to do it, how to get into a group and do it, because it's really not only fun, it's extremely powerful and you can feel that. And you have <clears throat> more powerful um, I'd say results, impacts. So my first answer would be, let's all learn how to do intentions and and put it out there. It has been a lifesaver, not only for me, but other people that I know of, you know, all of it. Stuff that's happening in the world. What if I did not have this practice? What would I be doing? How would I be, quote unquote, changing the world? You know, how would I be helping the world? Um, I don't know, but I know doing this work on the labyrinths that I love, I can. And I feel like I am definitely feeling a change, not only myself, which is good. <laughs> it helps the whole if I change too, but others as well. So so learning how to do this practice would be awesome. The second thing is, is to really take a deep dive with us at Legacy Labyrinth Project and the Labyrinth Activist Network to come and take this deep dive with us and really learn the the background of how this works how, um, how, how what you are learning, you know, to share with us, because that is crucial to, to all of this. So, um, so come learn the deep dive, come practice with us. I just, in this, this just happened like yesterday. Um, I'm co-writing a grant for college students to do this practice. And the more I was writing this grant and getting excited about, you know, what we could do, you know, I just saw the next generation of um, not only labyrinth walkers, um, but activists too. Right. It's, so it's, that's it's what I want to see. To think that mm-hmm. we're teaching a new generation a different way of being an activist. As we say at Legacy Labyrinth Project, powerful change can happen peacefully. Mm, yes. And you couldn't have said it better, Ellen. This is not your 1970s um, protest activism. This is the activism from the inside. And that's what I want to have people learn and understand mm-hmm. and believe. And I, I'll just, in this last part of the question, um, one of the biggest things about knowing about how to do intentions is you have to believe that it'll happen. You have to believe that it'll happen. If you have this little like doubt of, oh God, little old me can't make, you know, that big thing happen you're limiting your own power when you think that way. And the more you do this work, the more you do get in touch with your own 
powerful higher consciousness. So um, that that's pretty exciting too. Because if if a lot of us are doing this work, then you know, then we have this higher frequency in our in our world, which is what we need. Well, and we have the exponential power of of coming together. So our, you know, um, Chris, you know, in our impact format, we cover a news story and we have an intention. So our listeners can all can do that intention. We can all do it together. And that's awesome. I mean, we are changing the world. We will be changing the world. If you're loving that and you're feeling, as Chris said, the possibilities the Labyrinth Activist Network Circle is the next step to come together with others. You'll see us on the screen. You'll be in a group and it will be the next step for you to join and try something, you know, even more powerful than yeah, um, and, doing it. And in- it's free. Right. It's, it's free. free. <laughs> we meet once a month on the fourth Tuesday. And all, like I said, all of this will be in the show notes. So you'll be able to to join us if you'd like. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I feel like we covered a lot of ground um, and let our our community know a lot about what's going on in my world and your world. It is something that Chris and I are really excited about the possibilities for. So again, please remember, join us. Right. Check out our website too, LegacyLevinProject.org to for all of the latest um, presentations and classes that will be happening in 2024 to, to come along with us in our own research and our own deep dive into this work. We need you. We'd love to have you. We need you. Yes, we need you. Absolutely. The world needs you. The world needs you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. Good luck with impact. Thank you. You're listening to impact a podcast for anyone who believes in making a difference in the world through prayer, healing, and sending intention out into the world. Join us as we focus attention on where healing is needed right now. Together, we change our world. Chris and Legacy Labyrinth Project, along with World Labyrinth Day, are offering a free workshop on Saturday to learn more about intention. And that information will be in our show notes. So please join us. I'll be there too. So let's take a look at what we've picked up from the news this week. And as we record, it's the 3rd of January, 2024. And let's see where we might home in with our prayers and intentions. And this week, as our special focus, we thought we'd take a look at the rise and continuing rise of artificial intelligence, AI. As we know, this already plays a massive part in our lives. Um, Even just a few years ago, a survey found that more than 80% of us were using AI on a daily basis. Every time you go on the internet virtually, or you interact with one of those automated so-called bot, robot, uh, call center or help information systems, you are having an encounter with AI. And AI, in its most most general sense, refers to something that is capable of simulating at least something of the um, cognitive functions of our brains, but also having the capacity to learn, to adapt, and to improve. And what has been happening in recent years, as you may well be aware, is that the technology is moving at a very dramatic pace. Some 
are saying that this is no less dramatic or the, the, the impact of AI is going to be no less dramatic, not in 10 years' time or even five years' time, within the next couple of years as the Industrial Revolution or the arrival of the internet. Certainly back in 2023, AI became much more than a buzzword. The consultancy McKinsey referred to it as the breakout year. And this year, uh, The Economist, which every year publishes a guide to the year ahead, has forecast that AI will go really mainstream. Management consultant Deloitte also has been looking at the use of AI in businesses, has found that 94% of all business leaders agree that it will be critical to their success over the coming five years. Just to give a little flavor, and I won't go into too much of this, there's a lot happening here of some of the developments over the last year, just to show how quickly things are moving. Um, we obviously, I guess most of us know about chatbots, these um, automated systems that seemingly simulate uh, a human conversation when we go online. And there's been rapid development there. But also in other areas, AI is playing a very significant part. For example, Oxford University last year developed a new software model that is actually capable of creating music, uh, which is quite incredible, a te so-called text-to-audio model which can actually produce new tracks in different genres and including different instruments and lyrics and so on. In the field of education, a new AI platform launched in June last year by the Khan Academy uses bots as counsellors, curriculum designers, and teaching assistants. And in the automotive world, which has been spending a lot of money, as you may well know, for some years now in developing self-driving cars, I am longing for a self-driving car. I'm not able to afford one. <laughs> I think I will really look forward to sitting in the back seat. Ford last year um, has developed a new AI model, uh, which is all about accelerating its so-called autonomous driving project. And there are also other great strides, have been other great strides in the areas of news reporting and gathering, for example. Big investments to mainly by the big high-tech companies, um, such as Google's DeepMind, which is its company dedicated to AI re research and development. So this year, very much being seen as a, as a year in which this pace of development will continue. And clearly, this has big implications for us. It's not surprising, perhaps, that governments are beginning to take real attention of what is, what is happening. For some, I know this is the case in my own country, the UK, being competitive in this field, encouraging industries that uh, develop AI is seen as very important for the future economy. But there is also growing concern about some of the ethical issues, getting the balance right between the potential benefits in areas such as education, as we've just seen, in medical science, and even in the field of climate change. For example, AI being able to help reduce carbon emissions by, for example, operating and designing smart power grids and more efficient ways of distributing our energy. A lot of potential good there, but also a lot of potential bad. Uh, in, in the field of the military, quite scary, potentially, if it isn't controlled, the use of AI to possibly even launch missiles. 
whilst there is widespread recognition, not only amongst governments, but actually some of the, the big tech companies themselves, that AI needs to be regulated, um, at the moment, there's been relatively little progress towards agreeing um, universal, internationally applied standards. And this is challenging. The UK think tank, Chatham House, has pointed out, for example, that big competitive tech companies, understandably, uh, putting betting their futures on developing AI, are likely to be really quite secretive about what they're doing um, and not being terribly keen on cooperating with governments who want to put quite strict controls on such things as how our personal data is used. So how these ethical risks can be managed whilst encouraging competition and development and, as it were, reaping the, the benefits of AI is very uh, challenging. Probably, I think, one of the things that will uh, put the brakes on a little bit is the fact that there is already strong regulation around data privacy. And a lot of AI relies on having a lot of information given to it uh, by us, <laughs> the end users. A lot of people are very suspicious of this, understandably. And certainly in Europe, I know there's quite strong regulations about what data companies can, can uh, capture and use. Encouragingly, though, and it's a particular reason perhaps for raising this now as something where we may hold intention, there have been some significant uh, moves very recently towards cooperation between companies and governments um, to actually address this regulation question. So, for example, recently, the European Union passed its AI Act, and in the US, the Biden administration passed an executive order on AI. And recently, very significantly, I think, in, in the meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi in China, an agreement there to cooperate on military developments that incorporate AI. Actually, the um, geopolitics and news reporting organization Foreign Policy said that that meeting and that commitment between Xi and uh, Biden could be as consequential as the arms control dialogue between the US and Soviet Union during the Cold War. So there are, there are all sorts of different dimensions to this. So a lot happening at the moment. And for example, the Europeans AI Act we just mentioned, um, really offering some promising hope that standards will be agreed for developing AI in a, in a responsible, in an ethical way, and, and really guarding against the risks of it overtaking us and actually causing far more damage than uh, it offers benefits. Big tech com companies, including IBM, Meta, the owner of Facebook, Instagram, and so on, and many other high-tech companies are also cooperating. So a suggested intention, one very specific intention that comes out of all of this as we start the new year with regulation and a move towards cooperation being very much on the agenda of many governments is that we will, that the governments of all nations will be moved to commit themselves to urgent cooperation and dialogue aimed at bringing about a fully internationally endorsed and applied agreement that maximizes the potential benefits of AI while minimizing or completely eliminating its potential risks. As always, we'll put that in the show note as our suggested main focus to hold between episodes. AI is so interesting because there are so many possibilities and so many risks. So 
I feel this intention is really important for us to hold that it works for the greater good. And I think this thing that, you know, most of us don't realize how AI is already being used, because I guess a lot of us, mm. you know, go back mm -hmm. to the Star Trek and science fiction and, and really imagine it's very, um, very futuristic, but things like the robots <laughs> that uh, talk to us online, replacing mm -hmm. call centers and health centers and so on, uh, have been around now for quite some years, of course. I, I just had a sense of this. I, 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 I sometimes put uh, videos on YouTube. And just recently, I've started using aware of the copyright issues around this. And there's a way of testing whether something is copyrighted and can be used. Copyrighted music. And YouTube has a very, I know Facebook does as well, a very sophisticated system that within literally seconds will check hundreds and hundreds mm -hmm. of thousands of, of uh, tunes, music, uh, images online to see if there's anything that has copyright protection in what you're uploading. It's, it's absolutely remarkable how this happens. Wow. And I was also thinking about the image recognition. You know, you can do Google, uh, Google image searches and so on, mm -hmm. which are really mm -hmm. just the beginning of the power of that technology as well. It's becoming very, very sophisticated. So yes, exciting. Bring on the uh, driverless cars. Uh, <laughs> look forward to that when I'm next driving on the, um, the motorway around London, <laughs> the M25. <laughs> That would be great. <laughs> Safely, right? Safely. Absolutely. But we do need to proceed really carefully and, and so so critical that there is this cooperation. So other stories that have caught our attention this week, um, one that is interesting in the U.S. is that HOPE um, has strengthened with the cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico concerning migration. Top Mexican and U.S. officials said they've made progress last week in urgent talks called as many thousands of migrants surged toward the U.S. border. So in a visit to Mexico City, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken spoke with Mexican President Lopez Obrador alongside other top officials um, from both countries. But areas for further cooperation are believed to have been discussed, and at least 10,000 migrants a day have been arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, many of them seeking asylum. But that has decreased over this past week. And I was just reading this morning, Clive, that that's kind of cyclical. Ah, that, that happens every year. Ah. So they, they see a decline between the holiday and New Year season. So hopefully it will sustain itself. But it does sound like, you know, at least everybody's talking mm, and mm. moving in um, the right direction. They're mm. hoping to open the border again Thursday because of this decline and they have more workers that will be able to process people coming across the border. Mm. So um, like I said, I don't know if this is cyclical and next week it's going to rise again or if some of these changes will help things to mm. move in the right mm. direction. And tremendous yeah. to see the uh, what, what I was reading around this story. I mean, there's a lot going on behind the scenes, of course, we don't know. But it really struck me that there was huge mutual respect between Biden and his uh, Mexican counterpart, uh, real, uh, really cordial, cooperative. It really came across that there was a real working together actually, which I thought I thought yeah. is really very encouraging. That, that's necessary and awesome. Mm. 
Now, a story that uh, probably won't have escaped your attention if you've tuned into uh, Western um, news um, is, in other words, news in our countries, uh, UK and US. Mm-hmm. Huge story this week. A massive earthquake, absolutely one of the the most um, severe earthquakes that has hit in decades, hit western part of Japan in the Ishikawa prefecture. This was a a 7.6 magnitude earthquake. It's very, very near, um, as I understand it, to two major tectonic plates. Unsurprisingly, it triggered uh, tsunami warnings. And the real issue at the moment, apart from the fact that sadly 55 people were killed, at at least that number is the destruction to roads and infrastructure and many homes, which has really made it very, very difficult for the emergency services to to actually get through. There's actually a large force of emergency rescue uh, workers, including the army, firefighters and police officers from across Japan, who were mobilized very, very quickly, but actually being able to get to where the help is needed. Um, As the Prime Minister, Fumia Kishida, said, is a battle against time. And Japan, of course, literally the day before we were recording, suffered another major, major uh, terrible tragedy uh, yesterday with news of a a plane, uh, two planes colliding on a runway. Absolutely remarkable pictures from from one of the planes. Actually, everyone got off, which was extraordinary. But sadly, there were some killed on the other one. But seeing how quickly it went up in flames. Thankfully, of course, aviation travel remains very, very safe, generally. It's very, very rare this happens. I I was also reading this morning that people are suffering from being so cold and wet in Japan Mm. um, after the earthquake. And you were when you were mentioning that humanitarian aid can't get through, they said only about 2000 meals could get there, but they needed over 10,000. Oh, my goodness. So people are hungry and cold and wet from the rain and the water. so it's a, it's a really dire situation. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hope that, that the aid can get through. Absolutely. Israel is pulling thousands of troops from Gaza in a possible precursor to a scaled-back offensive. And in a week which Gazan and Israeli fatalities have continued, the Israeli military confirmed Monday that it was pulling thousands of troops out of the Gaza Strip, a step that could clear the way for a new long-term phase of lower-intensity fighting against the Hamas militant group. The confirmation of the planned troop drawdown came the same day that Israeli Supreme Court struck down a key component of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's contentious judicial overhaul plan. While the plan's not directly connected to the war effort, it was the source of deep division inside Israel and had threatened the military's readiness before the October 7th Hamas attack that triggered the ongoing war. Politicians warned against reigniting those divisions and harming the national unity that was prevailing throughout the Israel-Hamas war. So Netanyahu has vowed to press ahead with the military offensive until Hamas is crushed and the more than 100 hostages still held by the militant group in Gaza are freed. I hope they can move in the right direction Mm -hmm. that keeps this um, moving in the, you know, for the civilians that are being affected. Exactly, exactly. And there's there's another threat from... Uh, Hezbollah potentially now that uh, Israel mm. has um, killed 
in a drone attack, uh, the deputy leader of Hamas, he was in mm-hmm. the Lebanon capital, Beirut. And um, again, that, that risks, as it were, opening up. Already there's been a lot of skirmishes over the border between um, Lebanon and Israel, mm-hmm. really since the beginning of this war in October. But a real risk that that could escalate if, um, if, it, if it's allowed to. Story that uh, struck me last week, which I found very sad. Um, and as always, we apologize for bringing you, in some ways, bringing you so many tragedy uh, stories. We will, we'll have some good news as well in just a, a short while. But this is all <laughs> happening in the world, and it just shows how much our intention is needed. This, um, not a, an uncommon uh, scenario, unfortunately. A story from Indonesia, uh, the western city there of Banda Aceh, where Rohingya. Uh, refugees from Myanmar have arrived. A lot of Rohingya refugees leaving their country, going to countries such as Bangladesh, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia. Uh, obviously, they're the, the being a very um, persecuted minority in Myanmar. And Indonesia itself is, is a Muslim-majority country, so there will be hope that they will be well-received there. Last week, 137 uh, refugees were forced onto trucks by an angry mob of students who were who'd stormed a government building where they were being offered shelter and then demanded that they be sent home. Understandably, this incident has left many of the refugees really shocked and traumatized. I thought it was really interesting that they said this was triggered by an online campaign of misinformation and hate speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which has oh. been as we know, has been so often responsible or likely responsible for inflaming mm-hmm. uh, this this hatred. On the positive side, the Indonesian president, Yoko Widodo, has pledged to offer temporary shelter to those refugees who are coming. So looking back on the general reflections of these stories that we've covered, and our, we'll send our intentions for hope. We will that U.S. and Mexico's governments will be moved in their continuing dialogue to recognize opportunities that may be implemented for the benefit of both their people and all migrants who are seeking residence in the United States. And also for direction, especially for those involved in the rescue operation in Ishikawa Prefecture, so that they have the wisdom to know where to direct their efforts and resources to most effectively and quickly save the victims of the quake. In a movement of hearts, we will that those who feel driven to incite racial hatred and promote misinformation about the Rohingya people in Indonesia will be moved by compassion to consider the terrifying plight of these refugees who have come to their country seeking sanctuary from oppression. And finally, a good news story to end with. The world finally, uh, finally, <laughs> <laughs> there were others, but this this one uh, I, I thought was particularly uh, worth mentioning. The World Health Organization announced this week that road traffic deaths have fallen by an incredible, almost up to fifty percent across the globe in the last thirteen years. There is still well over a million per year, which actually equates to something like uh, two deaths occurring every minute, mm-hmm. albeit, you know, we're a, a world population of, uh, what, 8 billion now. Still, that is quite a high number. 108 countries reported a drop in road traffic-related deaths between 2010 and 2021 uh, in, in reducing 
the number of road traffic deaths in those countries by over 50%. And this included countries like uh, Belarus, Brunei, Darussalam, Japan, Lithuania, Norway, Russian Federation, Trinidad and Tobago, and the United Arab Emirates. And many other countries also made significant progress. There are still more than 50% of road accidents that involve pedestrians, motorcyclists, cyclists, and as it were, non-car users. So the report covered this decade of real progress, and it had, had been supported by the uh, philanthropic organization Bloomberg Philanthropies, which are committed uh, over $500 million to support road safety interventions in low and middle income countries across the world. Um, the president of that, or founder of that organization, uh, one Michael Bloomberg, who you may have heard of, said that our mission is to save and improve as many lives as possible. And one of the best ways to do that is to make more of the world's roads safe for all. And wear your seatbelt. And wear your seatbelt, indeed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to wrap up, our main suggested intention for this week is that we will, that the governments of all nations will be moved to commit themselves to urgent cooperation and dialogue aimed at bringing about an internationally applied agreement that maximizes the potential benefits of AI while minimizing or completely eliminating its potential risks. That about wraps it up for this week. Remember, you can connect with us in the Facebook group and for live intention holding in Clive's daily insight timer offerings and with me in the Labyrinth Activist Network's Zoom calls. Details of how to hook up with us are in our show notes. Thank you for listening and for sharing with us and holding intentions. We look forward to connecting again next time. And in the meantime, thank you, go well, stay safe. And remember, we are more powerful together. Impact is presented by Ellen Mintz and Clive Johnson and produced by Impact Productions. Our theme music is by Chris Collins and our logo artwork is by Auto Classic. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible or your favorite podcast provider. We're a non-commercial podcast dedicated to people of any faith tradition or none who yearn for healing in our troubled world. Please pass on the word so others may join us in making an impact. Thank you for listening.